So last week, this is quick review, the definition of sin. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. And we talked about the fact that the Bible defines sin not in terms of our own ability, not in terms of just we don't treat one another well or something like that. It was just human measurement of sin. But the Bible always defines sin with reference to God's moral character, and we don't measure up. And so that's why that definition is different from an ordinary human definition. Sin is selfishness or not being kind to other people or something like that. There's an element of truth in that, but the true definition of sin according to Scripture is failure to measure up to the moral standards or moral law of God in our actions or in our attitudes of heart or in the nature that we have. That is, uh, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, says Paul in Ephesians. And so that is even when you're sound asleep and doing nothing bad at all, you're still a sinner. By nature. So uh, act, attitude, or nature. And we talked about that a little bit. And since God requires purity of heart as well as actions, the desire to sin or commit adultery also equals sin in God's sight. And we talked about different verses that, uh, that mention that. Even in the Ten Commandments, the idea of not coveting had that. Therefore, it's not correct to say that feelings and attitudes are morally neutral. David says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And there are sins uh, such as enmity or jealousy or some kinds of anger uh, that are uh, sins of our heart, not just actions. Then we talked about the origin of sin last week and the fact that God is not to be blamed for sin. Um, uh, all his ways are justice. He's just and upright. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? God is not to be blamed for sin. He himself never sins. However, where did sin come from? It seems to me that it's consistent with Scripture to say that God ordained that sin would come about, but he didn't cause, he didn't, well, <laughs> the word cause is troublesome. Uh, God ordained that sin would come about through the voluntary choices of moral creatures. He didn't directly cause it, in other, in other words. It was through angels who sinned and became demons or through human beings who sinned, and we are to be blamed for that. But there's mystery here, and we spent some time, I don't know, 15 or 20 minutes, just talking about that and interacting over that deep mystery of Scripture. Then we talked about the sin of Adam and Eve, that their sin was foundational for future sins in several ways. Uh, and it undermined the principle, uh, it undermined in principle, all human thought about the important issues of life, like how do you know things? Well, Adam and Eve's sin struck at the basis for knowledge because it, uh, it denied God's word as the, as the ultimate standard for what is true and what we can know. God said, if you eat, you will die. Serpent said, you won't die. That was a direct contradiction, and Eve decided that God's words weren't true, or at least she'd doubt God's words and take an experiment, take a bite of the apple or whatever fruit it was, and, uh, and uh, see if God's words were true. Well, it was a, of course, it was sin. And then it struck at the basis for moral standards because God said, here's the moral standard, don't eat the fruit. And Satan said, eat the fruit. Uh, so it was contradicting God's moral commands, and um, Eve trusted her own human judgment of what was good for her. It looked good. <laughs> and it was a delight to the eyes. and It was desired to make one wise, she thought. And so she uh, took a different standard for what is right and wrong uh, instead of God's commands. And then it struck at the basis for what in uh, philosophy would call, be called metaphysics, what is. And it, it really undermined her understanding and, Eve, and Adam's understanding of the nature of reality. That is, God is the creator and they are creatures and they should be subject to God because he is the creator and they are creatures. But Adam and Eve wanted to be like God and... Uh, really challenge his sovereignty and supremacy, and uh, that was wrong as well. So we talked about that. Well, then why did Adam and Eve sin? It didn't make any sense, because it brought damage to them. It was contrary to God's word. It was contrary to God's will. Uh, and uh, they had all these blessings in the Garden of Eden. Ultimately, I think the answer is that sin is irrational. It didn't make any sense. <clears throat> it was foolish. But, uh, and so was the sin of Satan before them. Uh, to rebel against God and seek to become like God. But that is the character of sin. It is ultimately irrational. It doesn't make sense. And then we talked about those horrible uh, uh, shootings, or the horrible yeah, shootings in, uh, in Virginia the previous week where this, uh, this student had killed over 30 people. And, uh, and it seemed that, the, that Peggy Noonan's comment on that was, it was just evil. It, it didn't have a rational basis. I thought that was a very perceptive editorial. 
and um, trying to find a reason when something is just sin. And many people said demonically inspired, and I think probably so. Um, uh, that that is the character of so much sin. It doesn't, or all sin. Ultimately, it is irrational. So that was last week. Now we come this week to another issue, and that is the doctrine of inherited sin. Traditionally in theology, there's been a different title for this. Traditionally in theology books, this has been called original sin. But I I really didn't think that original sin was the best phrase for this because when you hear the word original sin, you think Adam and Eve's sin, right? But what in theology was meant by the phrase original sin was the sin, uh, the, 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 the moral guilt and the sinful nature that we inherit from Adam and Eve. And so I'm using a little bit different phrase than has been used traditionally. I'm using the phrase inherited sin. That's what I think is a transparent phrase, a phrase that you see the meaning of it right in the word itself. So the doctrine of inherited sin. Now, before we talk about this, this is another instance of hundreds of things in the Bible where if you if you just were kind of living out in the world and you made up your own religion, you would never dream of this. And you can't learn this from just observing human conduct. It's another one of those things, like, like just hundreds of things here, that you never would know it unless you read it in the Bible. That is, you won't know it unless God revealed it to you. But this doctrine of inherited sin gives us an insight into the eternal plans and purposes of God with regard to the human race, an insight that is the key to understanding how it is that Jesus could earn our salvation as well. So it's a very important doctrine, but it's one that we can only learn by hearing the words of God in Scripture as he reveals this doctrine to us. In summary, the doctrine of inherited sin, well, it has two parts. It has guilt that we inherit from Adam, and then it has a sinful nature that we inherit from Adam. And it's the first part, particularly, that I don't think we'd know unless the Bible told it to us. So, inherited guilt. We are counted guilty because of Adam's sin. Oh, come on, you say, that is not fair. That's our initial reaction. But I want you to hold off on thinking that for a minute or two until we look at some of the passages that talk about this and then reason through it for a minute. We are counted guilty because of Adam's sin. I think that is the right way to understand, for instance, Romans 5, 12 to 14. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that is, which man is that? Adam. Adam. Okay, sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, you look at that and you think, oh, I sinned and therefore I'm going to die and my my friend and my neighbor sinned and they're going to die. And you think that maybe that's what that means. But as people have read this passage in Romans more carefully, they've thought that probably is not that probably is not the right definition. Because, well, for one thing, there are infants who die who never actually committed actual sins, but they die. And then Paul goes on and says, well, it wasn't even counted when there wasn't any written law, but still people died. So maybe something else is being said here. And it comes from this, and so, in this little phrase, and so, kai hutos in Greek. Hutos means in this manner, in this way, or and thus, or I guess it was in this way. That is... In this way, death spread to all men. How did death spread to all men? Because sin came into the world through one man, and in that way, death spread to all men. That is, through the sin of one man, death spread to all men. I think that means that because Adam sinned, 
we were all counted guilty and liable to death. Because all sinned, Paul probably is looking back at the sin of Adam and saying, when Adam sinned, all sinned. When Adam sinned, God thought of us all as sinning. And that's not sort of the first reading you'd get from the passage, but the more people, that is, interpreters of the Bible, commentators of the Bible, look at that, the more they've said, it seems that that's what Paul is saying. And thus, as, and through one man's sin, death spread to all men, because all sinned or all were counted sinful in Adam. Um, and the other thing is, it looks like Paul is looking at a past event here, because all sinned. It's not because all are now sinning, or because all would sin, or something like that. It's a past event, because all sinned. When? Well, the time he's talking about, when that one man sinned, all sinned. So I think that's what that passage means. And then again, I think it's perhaps even more explicit here in Romans 8, Romans 5, 18 to 19, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. It isn't that everybody's trespass led to condemnation for all. It's one trespass. One trespass. One sin led to condemnation for all. So, that is in the same manner, one act of righteousness. Oh boy, let's back up a minute. What is meant by the one trespass? What is that? That's Adam's sin. Okay. What's one act of righteousness? Yeah, probably Christ's death. Okay, so, so one trespass led to condemnation for all. In the same way, one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So as for as, in the same manner, as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Okay, the many, hoi poloi, uh, were made, were made, were constituted. It's an aorist um, indicative verb here, looking at a completed event in the past as a, as a completed unit or single unit, katastathesan, uh, many were made hamartoloi, sinners. By one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, were constituted sinners, were thought of as sinners. So again, by Adam's disobedience, God didn't wait to say, oh, I'm going to wait to see if Garth sins, and then he'll be a sinner. I'll wait to see if Sandy sins, he'll be a sinner. I'll wait to see if Mark sins, and then he'll be a sinner. No, it's by one man's sin, we were all made sinners. We were all constituted or thought of as sinners. So it looks again like God thought of us as guilty, even though we didn't yet exist, but he looked in the future and knew we would exist. He thought of us as guilty, by one man's disobedience. Oh boy. Now, this is this is surprising. And I know you're saying, wait a minute, I wasn't there. How can that be fair? I didn't do this. Well, here's some answers. Is it just for God to act in this way? Well, first, everybody who says this has already committed actual sins, many actual sins, so we, you know, in one way, what's it going to get us to argue this way anyway? We're, we have to admit we're sinners. But I think we could also say, probably, that as Adam represented us, if we were in Adam's place or Adam and Eve's place, we would also have sinned. And maybe the fact that there were two people there and they both sinned is further confirmation of that. I mean, even though Adam was the one who represented the human race, Eve was there and she also sinned. But then there's another argument that comes back, and that is that it's the way God has set up the human race to work. And that is here. Now, see if we can follow this reason. If it's not fair for Adam's sin to be imputed to us, that is, thought of as ours. Then we should also say, it's not fair for Christ's righteousness to be imputed to us either. <laughs> if you want it one way, then you have to go with the fact that it works the other way too. And I think that there we see an insight 
into the way God made the human race to work. Contrast that with angels. I think that angels didn't have little angelets and then more little angelets and they, were, they grew up to be more angels. I think God just created all the angels, pow, all at once. And so there wasn't any head of all the angels who could represent them all because they didn't all descend from one angel. And when some of the angels sinned, well, they just sinned, but they didn't represent other angels. Other angels didn't sin. <clears throat> but then nobody represented them to save them either. But God made the human race to be different. He set it up so there would be this one man, Adam, who would be a representative of the whole of the human race to follow. And we all descended from Adam and from Eve. And so there, there is something in the human race that being represented by somebody else affects us. And there are analogies. They're not perfect analogies, but there are some faint analogies in human activity as well. Um, the first year we came here, in 2001, the Diamondbacks won the World Series. Well, Margaret and I were going around with everybody else here in Arizona saying, we won! Well, I didn't do a thing. I just watched it on TV and cheered. But they represented us, so we won. And then, you know, when you come out of a Diamondbacks game, was it yesterday? We lost. <laughs> or did they lose yesterday? I don't know. Yeah, they did. Okay. <laughs> All right, Joe. All right. Okay. All right. Or the Suns win. Then we won. So we're... Uh, we have that idea of representation, or we elect members of Congress and the president and the vice president, and when they act on behalf of the nation, then the nation does something. And uh, we have elected representatives, or our legislature, or our governor. Um, I say to people, we don't celebrate, or we don't observe daylight saving time in Arizona. Why not? Because our elected representatives have decided that we don't observe daylight saving time in Arizona. I mean, when they do something, it affects all of us, right? So there are some analogies like that, but of course, it's a much greater analogy with the human race. And um, uh, so I think that we see that explicitly in Romans 5.19, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. And I want to look at this word as, as and so, as and so. In the same way as this happened, by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. In the same way as by Adam's sin, you and I were made sinners and thought of as guilty before God. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And that's us again. In, in the same way that God set up. So Adam represented the race, he sinned, and we all who descend from him become guilty. So now Christ represents a new race of humanity, believers in him, and so by his obedience, we all can be counted righteous. So right back there at the beginning of history, when Adam sinned and God thought of all human beings represented by Adam as being guilty, he set up the mechanism or the process by which Christ, as one man, could represent all the rest of us as well. It's the same idea. Now, I have to be fair and say that though I would say this is the majority view within evangelical scholars and theologians throughout generations, yet not all agree that we have inherited guilt from Adam. And uh, Wiley, Systematic Theology, Volume 3, I just gave a little reference to that, and there's more bibliographical data in the back of my chapter if you want to read an alternative view on this. The second part of what happens from Adam is that we inherit a sinful nature. That is, as we grow up, we figure out all by ourselves how to do wrong. <laughs> And if any of you have raised children, you know that that happens. These sweet little children or grandchildren um, can figure out that they can do wrong and they start to enjoy it and be rebellious and they're just a sinful nature that they have as well as being counted guilty legally. But before I get on to the sinful nature, I want to stop and see if you want to talk about this inheriting guilt from Adam. Sandy? Wayne, I wonder if in part what we're seeing 
I wonder if, in part, what we're seeing in passages like the Romans 5, 12 to 14, that you put up there originally, is essentially God's view. And we're trying to understand it mm -hmm. from our view, which is the only view we have, since his thoughts are so much higher than ours and his ways. We can't see it like God does, but from God's perspective, when Adam sinned, mm -hmm. From God's view, seeing the end from the beginning, mm -hmm. he knew that that affected everyone. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, from our perspective, we're looking at each yep. person and their individual choice. And God, who has no past, present, or future, is not bound by time and chronology and generational mm -hmm. generations unfolding like we yeah. are. So, sees it all, and so in a sense, this is written, since it's inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, mm -hmm. it's written from yeah. God's perspective, yeah, in a sense. Yeah, that's helpful, Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good way of, uh, that's kind of another way of saying we wouldn't know this unless God revealed it to us. And it is, uh, yeah, it is how God looks at us, as guilty in, in his sight. Yeah, good. And I know it's hard to think, wait a minute, it wasn't me, but if it would have been you, guess what? <laughs> I think... You and I would have done the same thing. So, any other any other comments on this, Laverne, and then Charlie? We have the inherited nature yeah. of sin, but when we accept Christ, then we have the desire mm -hmm. and the power from the Holy Spirit not to sin. Yep. Yep. So that's what changes it to being a very tough thing to understand mm -hmm. that our attitudes and our being Good. has been changed Good. the desire Good. and the power yeah. of those that fills out the picture more good charlie i was just thinking that it uh, i'm sitting here thinking about evolutionary thinking and that it doesn't just deny god but it denies this inherited guilt because if we don't come from adam uh, then we're not all fallen okay charlie i good because i had thought that i should have said that i forgot this is one of the reasons why it's really important to insist that genesis the early chapters of Genesis are literally, historically, factually true. That there was a, a single Adam and Eve. And it isn't just a myth, a kind of a creation story or something like that. It really happened. And there was one man, Adam. And if, if there wasn't, who, from whom we all descend... We don't need then, Jesus. Then, then, yeah, then the system of representation for the human race uh, is, uh, is not working. And then this parallel between Adam and Christ doesn't work. Yeah, good. Okay. Other comments here. What's your name? Uh, my name is Jamie. Jamie. Um, go off of Charlie's comment. This is based upon the fact that Adam and Eve were the first two human beings. Period. Is that uh, if a flaw is introduced into a system, that flaw is propagated. I say that again. If a flaw is introduced into a system, that flaw is propagated, is oh, spread. Oh, okay. Um, you sound sorry, like an geeks. I, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I've got to stop speaking engineerese. <laughs> um, so Adam and Eve are the first two, period. They sinned, thus introducing a permanent fatal flaw to their nature. Yeah. That fatal flaw, just like, just like physically our DNA is passed generation to generation, it is all passed. All information for our bodies contained in our DNA, physically. Our natures are, are sort of the supernatural same thing. Our spirits passed down as well. Okay. So uh, from, all, from just the first two human beings, from which everyone came, that fatal flaw was introduced. There's no one else that was cleared by it. And when we when we accept Christ, that is completely removed from us, such that there are well, there's residual, but that is not our nature any longer okay. because we no longer have that nature. It is now Christ's perfect nature because He knew no sin. Okay. Well, that's another way of saying it. I, I, I wouldn't say we no longer have. I mean, there's still sin re remaining. In yeah, us. yeah. So, okay, well, we're getting ahead of the story. <laughs> I, I, but I, I exactly. think you're right. Okay, okay. In general, yes, I agree. Good. Anything else over here? Um, okay. Are you are you okay with this? This is um, again something I just think is is there in Scripture, but we wouldn't uh, we wouldn't know it unless it was uh, revealed to us by Scripture. Then there's something else. That's the second part of inherited sin. And that is something that seems to make more sense to us, and that is inherited corruption. We have a sinful nature because of Adam's sin. 
Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth. That's an expression the Bible uses for being brought forth out of your mother's womb. As I was born, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. He's not talking about his own mother there. The whole first five verses have to do with David's own sin. He's going all the way back as far as he can tell earlier in his life, then the moment he was born, and then before that when he was conceived, it was in sin. And he's saying there was a sinful nature in me as far back as I can remember. And uh, Ephesians 2, 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And so Paul is saying that all people have this. There is a sinful nature that people have, and it, uh, and it affects them. So again, this is contrary to the assumption of much of the world's culture and system, isn't it? The assumption of the world is all people are basically good. And, you know, there's a little truth in that because you go around different parts of the world, you meet people, they're nice people, they try to do right, they get along with each other and things like that. Not everybody, and you can point out conflicts around the world, but have, you know that. You travel different states, you travel different countries, and you say, oh, you know, they're the nicest people that I met. <clears throat> and, <clears throat> and people can think from that, and they reason from that, and they say, oh, people must be basically good. But the problem is they don't really know the person's heart. You meet somebody in a restaurant on a, on a vacation, you don't, you don't know the person's heart, you don't know what's going on inside, you don't know all their past history and if they've been honest or not, if they've been truthful or not, you know, and more than that, you don't know if they deeply love God and want to worship and honor him with their whole heart or not. Uh, so we don't know into people's hearts but the assumption of the world that says people are basically good, and if they aren't, oh, well, uh, they, they, they um, didn't have enough something growing up, parenting or, or uh, advantages or a culture or something to make them basically good like well, the rest of us are. Well, uh, but that won't overcome the world's thought that people are basically good, and all you need to do is talk to each other long enough, and you'll get along. And, and, the, uh, and the Bible's view is different. It says we have an inherited sinful nature that goes back <clears throat> to the beginning of our lives. And I think that we could confirm that in terms of children growing up. You don't have to teach children to do bad. You have to teach them to do good. And that's what parents work at and try to do. Um, except Eric's parents are here today. He was always good from the beginning. No. no, just most of the time, yeah. So we teach them, yeah, Carol? You like him, I know you do, yeah. <laughs> okay. So, um, so that's kind of a confirmation in experience. Now that doesn't mean that all human beings are as bad as they could be. Even unbelievers do much good. By God's common grace, he gives us conscience, he gives us society, he gives us uh, some sense of reason and uh, restraints of law and things. So people do much good, but it doesn't earn them ultimate favor with God. So in ourselves, we have a total lack of spiritual good before God. And here, again, if we're going to be honest and take the Bible's assessment of our spiritual status before God, every part of our being, every part of our being is affected by sin. And we have to be honest and just admit this. Our intellect is affected by sin. That is, we don't think all the true thoughts that God wants us to think. Our emotions are affected by sin. We have jealousy and wrongful anger and 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 um, and uh, hatred against people sometimes and bitterness that crops up. There are emotions, uh, wrongful uh, coveting or lust or desire that kind of come in our hearts. There, there are, our emotions aren't pure. And we don't love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength, as the Bible says we are supposed to. And so our decisions are flawed. Our hearts, our goals, our motives, even our physical bodies are affected by sin. And so it's not just that we're living in a fallen world, but we... we we make decisions that do things, and even the, the kind of the desires of our bodies sometimes are not what God wants. And so um, Paul says, I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh, Romans 7, 18. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. So in himself, without the work of the Holy Spirit and the, the forgiveness of Christ, nothing good dwells in him. And <clears throat> here he's, I think, seeing God's perspective ultimately. 
Um, I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? <clears throat> now, this should make us think, oh, God, I need your help. I, if I'm going to be honest before you, God, I have to admit I cannot make myself right before you. We just compare ourselves to one another and think, oh, I'm better than my neighbor, I'm better than my friend, or I'm better than my coworker, or this relative of my family, I must be pretty good. Whoa, you're just comparing yourself with you know, something way down here in the earthly level, and God's moral standard is so high and so pure and so holy. And in him there is no impurity, no uncleanness, no sin, no evil. He always does what is right and good. He is burning in his purity and holiness. Our God is a consuming fire, says the book of Hebrews. And everyone to whom God appears, like, like uh, when Isaiah saw the Lord in Isaiah 6, and he sees God in his purity, he says, woe to me, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. He, he, he knows then, and if, if God would appear to us, we would be stricken with the sinfulness even that remains in our own hearts as believers and surely unbelievers. So um, we have a total lack of spiritual good before God. That should make us feel helpless and say, Lord, I cannot save myself. I need your help. Please help me. And then in ourselves, we have a total inability to do spiritual good before God. Romans 8.8, 8, those who are in the flesh, that is working in their own strength, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And Jesus says in John 15.5, apart from me, you can do nothing. He says, abide in me, that is, remain in fellowship with him and entrusting with him and, and, and trusting him. And he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. I used to read that and I think, what do you mean? Apart from me, you can do nothing. I can ride my bike. I can go to school and take tests. I can eat cereal in the morning and eat supper at night and I can play baseball as a kid. And I was reading this. Apart from me, you can do nothing. What does that mean? I think that means nothing to please God ultimately, Not, nothing of true spiritual good before God. And these are Jesus' words. They're true. He's teaching us that in God's sight, there's nothing in our own strength that we're able to do. So Hebrews 11:6, without faith, it is impossible to please him. That's why unbelievers, though they may do much civic good or they may invent cures for diseases or they may give to charitable organizations and help uh, troubled kids and do all sorts of be kind to their neighbors, yet they're not, they're doing it ultimately out of desire to make themselves feel good in some way or other. <clears throat> it's not out of faith. It's not out of trusting in God through Jesus Christ. And without that faith, it's impossible to please God. That means we have a total inability in ourselves to do spiritual good before God. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And so Paul could say you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We have a total inability to do spiritual good before God. You can't get that by just looking at the world because people do things that are, in, in some sense, you know, good, uh, and they bring good for benefit for the world. But by reading the Bible, it says in God's sight, they still all fall short. Okay, so that's, that's, that's uh, inherited guilt from Adam and inherited corruption from Adam. Anything else on that? Or did you ever meet, did you meet somebody who's perfect? <laughs> no, okay. Okay. Now what about actual sin in our lives? <clears throat> actual sin in our lives. <clears throat> this is another part of the doctrine of sin. <clears throat> and we start out by reaffirming all people are sinful before God. Psalm 14:3, there is none who does good, not even one. Psalm 143:2, no one living is righteous before you. 1 Kings 8:46, Solomon says there is no one who does not sin. First John even says of believers who have trusted in Christ and go to Scottsdale Bible Church on Sunday morning, First John 1, 8 to 10, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So all people are sinful before God. Even believers, we're not yet perfect, though we're changed and forgiven. But now that is a question. If we're not able to do good, does that ability limit our responsibility? Does our inability limit our responsibility? See, now, in ordinary human experience, you're not responsible for what you're not able to do, right? <clears throat> uh, it's 
time and again I think of this, when somebody knocks on my office door and I say, come in, and the door is locked. So Ben comes to my office, he knocks on the door, I say, come in. What does he say? I can't, the door is locked. I say, well, you're responsible for it anyway. Come in. Well, of course, he, he couldn't do that. Because in human terms, if you can't do something, you're not responsible for it. But here's another area where the Bible just teaches us something that's different from our ordinary human experience. And that is before God, even though we're not able to do right, God still counts us responsible. That's because of all those verses we just talked about. And that uh, there's none who does right, no, not one, and he counts us. And, and, and these other ones, uh, there's uh, no one living is righteous before you. There's no one who does not sin, and we're, we're responsible for that. Now, there was a teacher in the early church who disagreed with this. He said, hey, come on, that's not fair. That doesn't fit with human experience. If I'm not able to do something, then I'm not responsible for it. And his name was Pelagius. And uh, he was active in Rome, uh, 383 to 410 AD, and then later in Palestine until 424 AD. Pelagius rejected the doctrine of inherited sin or original sin. He said, yeah, of course people do individual sinful acts. I see people who steal and lie and commit adultery. Those are sins. But he said, that's all that sin is. And he said, you know what? Um, it's possible for, for people to be good on their own. Uh, and in other words, Pelagianism would assert that man can take important steps towards salvation on his own apart from God's intervening grace. In a kind of a shorthand way of summarizing Pelagianism, it is we can make ourselves good enough to be saved. Well, the early church didn't think that fit with the Bible. Either to say that we can make ourselves good enough to be saved or acceptable to be forgiven for our remaining sins by God or something like that, and so Pelagianism was condemned as a heresy, the Council of Carthage on May 1st, 418. And the early church, and I think we today, rightfully say, no, the Bible doesn't say that we can do anything to make ourselves right before God except trust in him, because we are status before God, if we're going to believe God's assessment is that we are dead in trespasses and sins, spiritually dead. We're not able to do anything right to make ourselves right before God. But God's standard is you must be perfect, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Okay, now, our, there's another question that comes up, and that is, if David can say, I was sinful even from the moment my mother conceived me, I was brought forth in iniquity from the moment I was born. I had a sinful nature. If all people inherit guilt from Adam and also a sinful nature from Adam, then are infants guilty before they commit actual sins? Now, what I'm going to say here, I have a viewpoint that I'm going to express that has been held by many through the history of the church, but there's another viewpoint that others hold, and to my mind, it isn't 100% clear whether one view or not or the other is right. And so if you want to disagree with me on this, that's fine. But some people, not me, but some people say there's an age of accountability. And they get it from, um, uh, oh, they get it from uh, passages like, just as I was reading this past week, passages in Isaiah 7, for instance, where it talks about... Um, Uh, uh, he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. Before, before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. And there are other passages that talk about people growing to know their right hand from their left or growing up to be able to know evil and good and things like that. And we admit that, of course, uh, as children grow from infancy, they, over time, gain a sense of what is right and wrong. And there's a truth in that. I understand that. But does that affect how God thinks of us in terms of our moral standing? Well, I would go back to say David thinks that in sin, he was sinful from the moment his mother conceived him. And Psalm 58.3, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. And it looks to me like the testimony of Scripture is, no, we're guilty from 
the moment uh, we're conceived or from the moment uh, we're born. And the reason people want to talk about an age of accountability, and that's, this is another view within the evangelical world, is that people say, well, children who die before an age of accountability, maybe age four or five or something like that, well, they'll automatically be saved because God doesn't count them guilty. And the argument in favor of that, and some of my actual my friends in the evangelical world are sympathetic to this, who, who teach theology as well, is that when the Bible talks about God judging people, it, it talks about him judging people for actual sins they commit most of the time, although maybe Romans 5 is not is an exception. So I'm sympathetic to the arguments there, but I, I'm not persuaded by them. But then what about infants who die? If they haven't trusted in Christ and they die like a few days after they're born or even just maybe before they're born in a miscarriage, well, is it possible that they could be saved? I think absolutely yes. Absolutely yes. But here's the way I would reason. I would not reason on the basis of an age of accountability. I think that argument is a little wobbly. I would reason instead this way. If infants who die in infancy are saved, it must be entirely on the part of Christ's redemptive work and regeneration by the Holy Spirit working within them. And I think it is certainly possible for the Holy Spirit, when God is pleased to do this, for the Holy Spirit to work in a special way to bring regeneration, that's new spiritual life, to an infant even from very, very early in the child's life. So Luke 1.15 is an example. It's a prediction of John the Baptist. And here it says, uh, the angel says, he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. I think that means that the angel is saying, John the Baptist is going to be born again before he's born. I don't know how you can be born again before you're born. But anyway, before, from before he's born or from the moment he's born, from his mother's womb, he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, there, John the Baptist didn't have saving faith the minute he was born. At least he didn't have knowledge of Jesus. I shouldn't say he didn't have saving faith because I want to talk about that in a minute. But he, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. There was a regenerating, re regenerating work that God brought about in his heart. And David says, Psalm 22:10. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. I think David is hinting there at the fact that he had a saving relationship with God from his mother's womb. And then there's another argument. Not only is it possible that God works this saving, regenerating work in children's lives, sometimes, from, from, from the moment, uh, from early on in their lives, even maybe before they're born. And I'm going to back up and say, there probably is a certain, certain kind of instinctive faith in God that he can bring about in an infant's heart, even at or before the moment of birth. Just think about this. At the moment of birth, a little baby trusts its mother. And now I've read these stories saying babies can recognize their father's voice and their mother's voice because they've heard it within the womb. And so there is some trust in the parent that God even brings about in the infant before the infant is born. And if God can bring about that trust in a parent before the infant is born, can't God bring about also a kind of trust in God? For salvation in kind of a way that it doesn't come into real explicit verbal consciousness of the of the infant, but um, but does bring about a kind of a faith in God that is that goes along with salvation. Well, that's that's certainly possible. But then the second is there's a pattern of scripture that seems to me to be that God saves God generally saves the children of those who believe in him. I'm not going to say that there's 100% because there are some instances of scripture in scripture of children of good kings who you know went astray and were evil or things like that. But 
in general, it seems to me this is the ordinary pattern of God in Scripture. He saves the children of believers. And look at this, Genesis 7:1. the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, you and all your household, for I've seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Who was saved? Noah and his wife and three sons and their wives. Interesting, it was a family, okay? And then Hebrews 11, by faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. So his household salvation. God brought them all to, at least being saved from the flood, but I think that was an outward physical symbol of the fact that he saved them also spiritually. Uh, Joshua 2.18, to Rahab the prostitute in Jericho who had hid the spies, Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. That is, Rahab and her relatives were saved. Now, the judgment on Jericho, the destruction of Jericho, was, I think, again, a physical act that was, a, was symbolic of a spiritual reality, and, I think, and Rahab end, uh, ends up being one of the ancestors of Christ. And so I think there's a spiritual reality going on here with the saving of the household. Another very crucial passage in this regard is King David's son who died. And it's interesting because this is the son who was born after David committed adultery with Bathsheba. So this is the son who was born out of David's sinful act of adultery. A child was conceived, and here's what happened. 2 Samuel 12:19. When David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that they didn't know they weren't they didn't know if they should tell him or not that the child had died because David was fasting and praying. David understood that the child was dead. It was just after the child had been born. And David said to his servants, "Is the child dead?" They said, "He is dead." Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house, and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him but he will not return to me. David is worshiping. He stops fasting, and then he says, I shall go to him. I don't think he means, the child died and I'm going to die. I'll go where he is. If he had meant that, he would have said, I'll go where he is, or I'll die like him, or something like that. When he says, I shall go to him, he is looking forward to personal interaction. He's looking forward to being re reunited with his son at some point after this life. I shall go to him. And I think David there, the man after God's own heart, is giving us an indication that this is what God wants of us. If we would ever be in a situation like that, where an infant would die in infancy, we expect reunion and reunification in the presence of God uh, in the age to come, or after we die, I shall go to him. Margaret and I uh, had opportunity a number of years ago, a, 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 a student at Trinity Seminary and his wife had a child who was just a, a few weeks old and had died with, um, uh, I think it was sudden infant death syndrome, wasn't it, Margaret? And um, uh, we, went, we went to them, we were in the... Uh, infant care unit at Evanston Hospital with them and where the child was just near death and prayed with them and prayed for the child to be well, but then the child died. And, and we turn to this passage in Scripture as, I think, given by God as an opportunity for us to gain encouragement and comfort that there will be a reunion someday. The steadfast love of the Lord, Psalm 103:17, is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. 
I'm just going to go see this pattern. God saves the children, the households of those who believe. John 4:53. Uh, this man uh, whose son was sick, Jesus said, "Your son will live." And this man, he himself believed, and all his household. So God imparted saving faith to the whole household of this uh, man whose child had been healed by Jesus. Acts 2:39. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Acts 11:14. he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. This is Cornelius, uh, the, uh, the Gentile centurion. Uh, and Peter is going to come and speak, and, he, and Cornelius will be saved and all his household. Acts 16:31. the Philippian jailer, Paul says to him, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Acts 18.8, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. This is at Corinth when Paul is preaching. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. 1 Corinthians 1.16, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. 1 Corinthians 7, well, I'll, go, I'll stop on just for a minute here. Uh, these instances of salvation to household, I, I don't think that means it's automatic. Um, because, um, for instance, with the Philippian jailer, a few verses later it says, he rejoiced with all his household that he had believed in Jesus. And so the whole household also was believing. There was faith on the part of these people. So I don't think it's an automatic thing, but I think it's a very common pattern of God in Scripture to save the children of those who believe in him. Now, I put up here 1 Corinthians 7.14, the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as is, they are holy. I don't think it means they're automatically saved, but I think it means there's some spiritual blessing or benefit, some inclination toward holiness, some inclination toward obedience to God that comes uh, as a result of uh, one, even one parent being a believer in a household. So, it looks like we've got four minutes left, and I'm going to have to stop and see if there's some questions here about this point. I, I'm not saying automatically all children of believers are always saved, but I'm saying that's the very frequent pattern of Scripture, and it seems to me that that is what we should expect if there are tragic situations where an infant dies in infancy. Okay, um, Don. Wayne, does household refer to just family members? Well, I think in a number of those cases, it was the servants in the household, too. It was interesting um, that uh, one came to faith, and God brought them all to faith, and they were all rejoicing together. It's, it's a wonderful thing. I, I expect on the mission field that is even happening in many cases today. But you know what? We also see it in, in Margaret became a believer. Her brother became a believer. A few years later, her dad became a believer. Then her mom became a believer, and... So there's something of that that happens. You not, don't know how long, but yeah. yeah. What else here? More? Yep. Art. David said I shall go to him. Go ahead. Yeah. David said I shall go to him. Yeah. You know, when David said that, it was understood that this babe was saved. Oh. It was understood that it didn't have any effect on the babe. Because of the results of the idolatry. Yeah, the, uh, of the sin, adultery. of the adultery. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Yeah. 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 And David expect. I mean, David assumes that the, that the child is still alive right. and he's able to go to him. Yeah. 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 Or he assumed that the, chi uh, the child was dead. Yeah. But he was not in hell, for example. He was. I don't think so. He was with the Lord. Yeah. Yeah. And David knew that and yeah. he could go to him Good. then. Good. Good. Yeah, I think so, Art. I think it's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Gene. The Pope, having uh, changed the teaching on uh, limbo... Oh, the Pope, just within the last month or so... Recognizing that point, frankly. Oh. Um... Yeah, I'm going to have to think about that before I make a comment. But the, the Catholic Church did have this doctrine that infants who die... Uh, well, they've got, of course, you get into a Roman Catholic view of baptism being necessary to salvation, which I don't hold. But they had infants of 
of non-believers who died, is that in, who were in, in limbo, not in heaven or not in hell, and then and then they've done away with that. Is that they were unbaptized? Then okay, I think I'm because there's a whole bunch of other stuff connected with that. Um, but I did think that that was not consistent with scripture, so I'm glad that it was changed. Yeah, yeah. Okay, all right. <laughs> I'm not going to say anything more there. Okay, uh, uh, way in the back, I've got a couple back there. What's your name way back here? My name's Rosie. Yep. And uh, as a happy, evangelical, compassionate Calvinist. Are you talking about you or me? <laughs> I'm trying to be one. Okay. <laughs> Oh, uh, I, I have to admit that a free will somewhere is an eternity past through creation into sin. But free will has nothing to do with us escaping that condition. I, I, I didn't understand what you said. Try again. If, if free will under limited atonement has little or nothing to do with salvation. I can be okay with that. But I also have to be okay with somewhere in eternity past, there was a willful free will that cast creation into the state of sin. Okay. Oh, boy. There's a bunch of stuff in there. Um, I, I kind of hesitate to use the phrase free will because there are so many different definitions that people give to it. I, I think in a lot of ways we are free. We make willing choices. We think about things. We ponder them. We choose things. And, and so I don't want to say that we're robots or machines or something like that, that we do make willing choices. Um, um, but I don't think they're apart from God's plan or eternal ordaining of what will be, bring his glory throughout history. So I'm, I'm not <laughs> I think I'm just going to leave that, let your comment stand and, and my response stand, and we're going to sing here for a minute. Okay. Uh, look, um, hmm. I need, to, out of fairness to you, I need to say one more thing. And that I thought people would raise it, but I didn't, it didn't. That is, I said it's God's pattern to take the children of believers, the infants who die, infants of believers to himself. What about the infants of unbelievers? Who die. Some people think that God saves all of them, and that is possible. My own viewpoint is I don't think the Bible tells us the answer. And so I am going to say this that God is merciful and God is just. And in eternity, we'll find the answer to that, and it will seem right and fair to us, and will be consistent with God's mercy. What I do see in Scripture is this pattern of God saves families, or he saves the the children of believers often. And that was what I was focusing on here. And on the other, it seems to me that Scripture is silent. But but God's God's character is good. And, And we can trust in who he is and that he will do right. And I'm just, I'm just going to leave it there. All right? Um, yeah. Now, Ed, I know that I'm going one minute over here, two minutes over, but go ahead. Uh, Matthew 19, 14. Yes. Let the children come to me. For to such belongs. Yeah, yeah, I understand. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Yep. Um, I'm not sure how much, but I can I can understand. And there may be some of you thinking, well, wait, I came to faith later in life. What about children earlier? Well, God knows all that, and and uh, I think these these uh, this pattern of scripture is. Uh, I I I would guess that there will be many wonderful surprises in heaven in those cases, and uh, and I'm very thankful. Let's pray for a minute, and then and then I think we should be closed. Lord, as we as we come to the end, we've delved into things that are that we just, I mean, we couldn't make up answers on our own and know, Lord, what is right. But but your word guides us, and we thank you for it. And Lord, as I as I come to the end of this time, I'm I'm thinking I, I really didn't feel the horror horror and the awfulness of sin, as much as your word portrays it, and as much as you 
understand it and how horribly it dishonors you and rebels against you. And so, Lord, help us to feel that and to know that and to sense even a tiny bit of how, how horrible sin is and how wonderful is your salvation that you've given us in Christ who died for our sins, died to do what we could not do, and that is bring us salvation. And Lord, we thank you so much for that. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you represented us as our federal head over the race of all who would be redeemed. We thank you that your salvation is sure, that you've done for us what we could not do for ourselves, and we rejoice in that. Amen.